you brought a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you are more than welcome to use one of the pew Bibles. You can find those in the seat back in front of you. Now you may or may not be familiar with the name Marie Kondo. For those of you who don't know, uh, Marie Kondo is an organizing guru who has uh, developed her own internationally known system for decluttering homes. She's written several books on the topic, and she has not just one, but two series on Netflix. What sets her decluttering system apart from all others is that it's based on personal feelings rather than some other impersonal criteria, like limiting yourself to a certain number of a particular object. If you're uncertain whether to keep an item or to get rid of it, Kondo says you should look at the item and ask yourself if it sparks joy. If it does, then you should keep that item. How do you know if something sparks joy? Kondo acknowledges that the feeling is a little bit different for everybody, but then she also describes it as, quote, a little thrill, as if the cells in your body are slowly rising. If you've been hiding a pair of polyester bell-bottoms in the back of your closet for the last 40 years, and you just can't decide if you should continue to keep them, I'm looking at you, Bob Taylor. <laughs> you should look at those bell-bottoms and ask yourself if you feel that telltale little thrill. If so, then it's unfortunately not time to burn them just yet. Now, this may or may not be an effective method of decluttering your home, but there's a bigger question that needs to be asked here. Is the feeling that Marie Kondo is describing truly joy? Sadly, many Americans seem to think that that's the case. We confuse joy with happiness, and we end up uh, thinking that the things that make us momentarily happy are actually bringing us joy. Watching our favorite sports team play a good game gives us a rush of excitement, and we decide, whether consciously or unconsciously, that what we're feeling is joy. A gift that we open on Christmas morning is something that we've wanted for a long time. And that momentary happiness and satisfaction leaves us thinking that we're experiencing joy. Eating a hostess cherry pie is like a party in our mouth. And it gives us a pleasant sugar high. And we think that that must surely be joy. But in all these cases, our feelings fade. Next time our sports team plays, they stink up the field. And there's no joy to be found. On December 26th, we've already forgotten that amazing gift, and life just goes back to normal. A couple hours after our cherry pie, we have a sugar crash, and then we're sleepy and hungry again. There's nothing inherently wrong with liking sports or gifts or pie, but we need to understand that just because something feels good, that doesn't mean it's bringing us joy. There is, in fact, a real difference between happiness and joy. And it's important for us to grasp that difference if we're to understand the Bible when it talks about joy. In all three of the scenarios I mentioned, the pleasurable feelings were a result of our circumstances. Our happiness was wholly dependent on how well the team was playing or how good the gift was or how amazing hostess pies are. It's looking at an item in our home and feeling Marie Kondo's little thrill. That's happiness. It comes and goes based on what's happening to or around us. Joy is something different. And in our scripture passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to make that very plain as he describes the reasons for his own joy. Let's read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. 
I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the inerrant word of our God. The first reason Paul gives for his joy in our text this morning is that Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being proclaimed. You'll recall that Paul is a prisoner in Rome as he's writing this letter. In fact, that's sort of the reason why he's writing to the church at Philippi. The Philippian believers had heard that Paul was in prison, and they were concerned for him. Prison in the first century Roman Empire, was not the three hots in a cot that we might think of when we consider prison today. Prisoners' physical needs were not provided for by the government. So if a prisoner was going to eat, he needed a relative or a friend to bring him food. If he needed a change of clothes, he was dependent on someone on the outside bringing him something to wear. If the prisoner or their loved ones couldn't afford those things, then the prisoner just went without And if that meant nakedness and or starvation, then so be it. Prison was a fairly expensive position in which to find oneself. Now Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have been entitled to one meal a day provided by the empire. But like most of us, Paul presumably needed to eat more than once a day. Additionally, he was under house arrest in Rome rather than in an actual prison, which meant he was renting a house to stay in. And the Philippians, out of love for Paul, decided to send him a monetary gift to help offset the costs. So Paul is writing to the Philippians to thank them for their gift and to let them know how he's doing in order to alleviate their concern for him. Now, we might hear house arrest and decide that Paul probably didn't have it too bad. And in a sense, that may be true. Paul had been an inmate in actual prisons before. Ironically, he had been in prison in Philippi prior to the writing of this letter. So being incarcerated in a house might not have been too bad of a thing for him. It might have been a nice change. However, 
despite the fact that he wasn't sharing the house with any other prisoners, Paul would have zero privacy. Rather, he would have been shackled to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without fail. Now, in cartoons and in comedy films, we sometimes see this scenario played out where two characters somehow accidentally get handcuffed together, and then hilarity ensues as they try to find a way out of their predicament. But this wouldn't have been a funny situation for Paul. The situation meant that everything Paul did, including bathing and relieving himself, would have been done with a soldier right next to him. And just like being in an actual prison, Paul would not have been allowed to leave the house at all. There was no opportunity to get some fresh air out in the yard. He was confined to quarters nonstop. Most of us just about lost our minds when we were ordered to shelter in place for a few months back in 2020. And a trip to the grocery store became almost a mini vacation because it gave us a break from the, the boringness and the monotony of sitting around the house all day. Paul didn't even get grocery runs. He was stuck in a house, chained to a guard for about two years. In verse 12 of Philippians 1, Paul begins the main body of his letter, which, following the customs of the time, would have been where he informed the Philippians how he was faring while he was imprisoned. Now we, and perhaps the Philippians, would have understood and perhaps even have expected Paul to explain how miserable he is and how difficult his circumstances are. It seems to be human nature to only want to talk about our sufferings when things aren't going our way. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he immediately turns the focus to how his imprisonment is actually serving to spread the gospel. Paul, again, is spending his days and nights chained to a Roman soldier. And please note, it's not the same soldier all of the time. We don't know how many soldiers were responsible for guarding Paul, but we do know that the soldiers would have been on a four-hour shift. So each soldier would have had a four-hour look into Paul's life as Paul wrote letters and spoke to visitors about faith in the risen Christ. And it seems unthinkable that Paul would not have also shared the gospel directly with his guards. Between hearing about Jesus and seeing the integrity and the faith with which Paul conducted himself every moment of every day, Paul could rejoice in verse 13 that the whole imperial guard knew that he was imprisoned for Christ. That all the rest that Paul also refers to in verse 13 was very possibly the rest of the imperial household. The imperial or praetorian guard were the only soldiers allowed within the city of Rome. And their sort of major role was to uh, serve as essentially bodyguards for the royal family. So between those Praetorian guards watching over Paul and then carrying out their other duties in Caesar's residence, the reasons for Paul's imprisonment would have likely become known to those in the palace. Even beyond that stunning reality, though, Paul could gladly report in verse 14 that as a result of his imprisonment, most of the brothers and sisters in Rome had been emboldened to share the gospel without fear. Now we get a bit of a mystery here as Paul mentions two groups of believers who are evangelizing. One group we can get behind. They're preaching Christ out of love for Paul and the knowledge that he's been imprisoned for the defense of the gospel. Paul's example and witness has moved them to carry on Paul's work of evangelism. 
the other group is more difficult to get our minds around. Paul says that they proclaim Christ out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. It's significant that Paul lists envy and rivalry as their motivation because he warns against those very things in his letters to other churches. In Galatians 5, when Paul is making a contrast between the flesh and the spirit, he says in verses 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just a few verses later in Galatians 5, Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In Titus 3.3, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In his famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love does not envy. So clearly, this second group that he refers to here is spreading the gospel out of wrong and even sinful motives. Both Matthew and Mark mention in their Gospels that Pilate recognized that the Pharisees had delivered Jesus up for crucifixion out of envy. It wasn't just that the Pharisees were wishing that they had Jesus' popularity. They had a a live and a fierce resentment toward him and a desire to do him harm. And that's what we see from these individuals who are proclaiming Christ in an effort to hurt Paul. We're not sure exactly who these individuals are or how their evangelizing is meant to hurt Paul. But we do know that Paul calls them brothers in Philippians 1.14 and that he believes that they are preaching the true gospel. He has no condemnation for them like he has for the Judaizers and their warped gospel in his letter to the Galatians. There, Paul is quick to decry the false teachers and warn the Galatian Christians not to buy in to what those false teachers were preaching. We don't see that here in Philippians, though. Look again at verse 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul knew that God could and did and does use ungodly people and means to spread his gospel. I personally was converted at an Acquire the Fire event put on by uh, Teen Mania Ministries. Since my conversion, a number of people formerly associated with Teen Mania have come forward with allegations concerning the ungodly attitudes and actions of the ministry's founder. By all accounts, he was not a nice man. But the events that his ministry put on led to the conversion of myself and a number of other young people. And for that, we can praise God. Paul had joy in the spread of the gospel. The word about salvation by grace through faith in the risen Christ was spreading throughout Rome, and that was Paul's whole focus. He wasn't dwelling on his physical circumstances. 
He didn't look at the chain on his wrist or at the brothers trying to hurt him to see if those things sparked joy. In point of fact, they did spark joy, true godly joy for Paul because God was using them to further his work of making the gospel known. So even incarcerated, even knowing he had enemies within the Roman church trying to hurt him, Paul could have joy that Jesus and his finished work on the cross were being made known. That was what Paul had been called and converted for, to be a missionary and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And even though Paul is currently under house arrest and he isn't able to travel and preach, he isn't bitter or frustrated. The gospel is still going forward by means of Paul's imprisonment. God is using Paul to spread the gospel, maybe not in the ways that Paul would have expected, but he is doing it nonetheless, and so Paul rejoices. And Paul gives a second reason for his joy in our passage this morning. Christ is being lived. Christ is being lived. Paul says in verses 19 and 20 that he will rejoice because he knows that through the Philippians' prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. And that he eagerly expects and hopes that he won't be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored, whether by Paul's life or by his death. And then he caps that with the extremely well-known verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If we want to understand the reason for Paul's joy, we've got a few things that we need to unpack here to make sure that we're really getting what Paul is saying. First, that word deliverance in verse 19 is not referring to his deliverance from prison. He's not saying that he thinks he'll be released or found innocent. In fact, the word deliverance would maybe be better translated as salvation or vindication, which is how some English translations actually render it. And we can know that based on verse 20. If we take deliverance to mean deliverance from prison, then when Paul says in verse 20 that he expects that he won't be ashamed, he would mean that being found guilty by Caesar would shame him. But he's already told us in the preceding verses that his imprisonment for Christ is a source of joy, not shame. What Paul actually means by the word in question here is his final eschatological salvation. When he arrives at the end of his life, when he stands before the Lord, he expects that he will have lived in a Christ-honoring way and not in any way that would cause him to be ashamed or would disqualify him from eternal life. He brings up this idea in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. He asks, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is not here advocating works righteousness. He's not implying that we need to, or that we even can, earn our salvation. But he makes plain that our salvation should look like something to others, that our lives should bear out our confession of faith. 
In Philippians 2, Paul is going to tell the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he's getting at here. He says that through the Philippians' prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, he will continue, even in his difficult circumstances, to conduct himself in a Christ-glorifying way. And in verse 19, he tells us the two sources of help that he's relying on, the Philippians' prayers and the Holy Spirit. There's another translation tweak that I'd like to make here. That phrase, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, would more accurately be translated, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Again, a little clarification is in order. Paul, like all who have true faith in Jesus, has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. It is a deposit and a guarantee of his, his inheritance in the kingdom of God. Believers, though they may grieve him, cannot lose the Holy Spirit any more than they can lose their salvation. So Paul is not hoping here to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time or to gain back something that he's lost. Rather, he's anticipating a fresh and a dynamic filling of the Holy Spirit to strengthen him, to be courageous so that Christ would be honored in him. The book of Acts gives us several examples of believers who have already received the Spirit, being given a dynamic, fresh filling of the Spirit in order to glorify and honor God. In Acts 4, Peter and John are on trial before the Sadducees. And in verses 8 through 11, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Continuing on in Acts 4, Peter and John are released from the Sadducees' custody. They go back to the other believers, and we're told in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then in Acts 13, we're told of Paul and Barnabas' trip to Pisidian Antioch. And the chapter ends by telling us, The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These were all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in each of these cases who had already received the Holy Spirit at conversion. But in each case, they're filled up with the Holy Spirit, usually so they can evangelize with boldness and with power. That, that he would be filled afresh with the Spirit, that he would have power to defend the gospel, even on trial before the emperor himself. But he's also relying on the Philippians' prayers on his behalf in order to ensure God gives him courage to stand boldly for the gospel before Nero. Notice this. Paul isn't asking the Philippians to pray that he gets released from prison or even that he's found innocent. He's not asking them to pray that he gets enough to eat or that he's comfortable in his rented house. The only thing that he's expecting or even desiring them to petition God about is that he won't be ashamed but will continue living for Christ. And that's typically how Paul prays for others in his other letters as well. He focuses on their spiritual needs, their spiritual state, rather than their physical circumstances. I don't know about you guys, but I find that very convicting. Now, there's nothing wrong with...
God would provide the money for someone's rent or whatever. But do we get stuck purely on the physical? Do we ever pray for our brothers and sisters to live boldly for Christ? Who knows what God might do to advance his kingdom if we were all to regularly pray for one another to not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. says to live Christ to die gain Paul uses this as a launching point for laying out a hypothetical choice between continuing to live and being executed obviously Paul has no more say in the outcome of his trial than any inmate does he's at the mercy of Caesar but he makes a big deal about which option he'll choose here in order to model for the Philippians what Christ honoring selflessness looks like there's evidence in this letter that there was some sort of tension or division uh, developing within the, the Philippian church, and Paul's trying to sort of head that off. In chapter 2, he'll admonish them to be humble and to look out for the needs of others. So here in chapter 1, he gives them an illustration of what that looks like. But that's not all this passage is. It's also Paul genuinely sharing his heart with his brothers and sisters in Philippi. He freely admits that his desire is for death. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not speaking out of depression. He's not despairing because he's in prison. He's not looking for some desperate way out of his present circumstances. Rather, he desires to die precisely because he knows that leaving this life means being with Christ in a much more dynamic way than he is able to be while he lives on in the flesh. It means gaining the reward that he's been working toward through all of his trials and tribulations for the gospel's sake. It means hearing his Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul knows that if he survives his upcoming trial, God will continue to use him and work through him for the gospel's spread. He calls it fruitful labor, and he's not opposed to that because to live is Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about how he has given up his rights as an apostle to receive his living financially from preaching the gospel. In verses 16 and 17 of uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with work has been entrusted to him as a stewardship from God. Paul doesn't get the option of retiring at 65 or when he's taken the gospel to a certain number of churches or planted a certain number of churches. He doesn't get to move to Florida and spend his days collecting seashells. Even if his body's too old for him to easily travel from place to place,
mentally for a number of years at this point. Paul is okay with all of that. But like a runner nearing the end of a marathon, Paul is ready to complete his race and receive his crown. And so he tells the Philippians that his desire is to depart and to be with Christ. But that's not where he leaves it. He understands that his remaining alive is more necessary for the Philippian believers. If he survives the outcome of his trial before Nero, he can continue to minister to the Philippians. He even plans to visit them again if he's released so that he can see them face to face and they can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He says in verse 25 that given the choice, he would elect to remain alive because he knows that it would be the greater good for them and that it would lead to their progress and their joy in the faith. I think we look at Paul as sort of an oddity, as someone who was unique precisely because he derived his joy wholly from living for and proclaiming Christ. We see in our own lives that our joy is more likely to look like Marie Kondo's definition, as a momentary little thrill that comes as a response to something pleasant happening in our lives, or to looking at or interacting with some favorite personal possession. We don't feel joy in the normal, everyday routine of our lives. Joy is not a fixed reality for us. We just put our heads down and we trudge through life, hoping for a day off work or for donuts in the break room. And we accept that as good enough because we're not Paul. We assume Paul's joy sprang from his miraculous interactions with God or from the incredible ways in which God has used Paul or worked miracles through him. God doesn't use us that way, so we don't expect to have the kind of joy that Paul has. But Paul fully expects that the Philippians have joy in their faith, even though they weren't all traversing the Roman Empire with the gospel the way that Paul did, even though they weren't all whisked up to the third heaven and shown amazing things like Paul was even though they were just ordinary people with ordinary lives. They had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who had borne God's wrath in their place on the cross and had been risen from the dead on the third day, that he might sit at the right hand of God the Father and make intercession for them, for all who believe. And they had received the Holy Spirit to guide them in their faith and to act as a guarantee of their heavenly inheritance. We certainly all know Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The second fruit he mentions is joy, fully believing that all indwelt followers of Christ should exhibit joy in their daily lives, not just when things are going good or when some physical circumstance makes us happy. Our inclusion in the body of Christ is an unchanging reality. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So long as our faith in Christ is genuine, nothing and no one can separate us from God, and that is plenty reason enough to have lasting joy. We can't always be happy, but we can and we should always be joyful. When our car breaks down and leaves us stranded on the side of the road, we're not going to be happy. When we spill soup on our favorite shirt or 
we lose our job or a loved one is hospitalized, we're not going to be happy. But we can still and we should still be joyful knowing that the worst that life has to throw at us pales in comparison to the unchanging reality of our union with Christ. If your faith is in Christ alone for your salvation, that salvation is guaranteed. Eternal life in the presence of the living God is yours. You're not just forgiven. You're the adopted son or daughter of Father God and a co-heir with Christ of the kingdom of God. That remains true no matter how boring or tedious or difficult or unpleasant your circumstances may be. And it should be a source of great joy to you. If it's not, you may need to pray about any sinful thoughts or attitudes that might be hindering you from experiencing joy in the Lord. It could well be that we're not striving to live for Christ and proclaim Christ every moment of every day. And that's hindering our joy. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go to another country and live in a mud hut and run the Jesus film nonstop for the indigenous people. Most of us have day jobs that eat up the majority of our waking hours, along with the lion's share of our mental and our physical energies. But we can live for Christ right where God has put us. Consider Paul's words in Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Granted, Paul was addressing those instructions to bondservants or slaves, but they're no less true for us just because we work for wages. We should strive to do all that we do as though doing it for the Lord. And that applies to those who aren't currently working a nine-to-five, to the retired among us, to the disabled among us, to stay-at-home parents. Paul puts the same idea another way in another uh, very well-known verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In that way, we can live for Christ and find ourselves blessed with opportunities to share the gospel with those around us. And in that is true biblical joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, give us that joy. The joy that was a reality for Paul. That was a reality for the Philippian believers. God, give us that same joy as we strive to live our lives for you. To live for Christ, to proclaim Christ, to further your kingdom on this earth, God. Let it be so, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.